Femoral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. Before George Melier shot a rocket at the moon, before Edwin Porter staged the great train robbery, after Moybridge captured a horse's feet leaving the ground, and Edison put subjects in a black box like medical specimens, after the Lumiere brothers caught the train rolling into the station, but before there were any theaters to show their work, and the movie business as we know it was only a spark in the collective imagination. Alice Guy, the first and for 17 years only female film director, shot her first picture, a fantasy landscape with babies coming out of cabbages. She wanted to be known as the first female film director, and she was. The Lumiere brothers projected their first motion picture on the wall in 1895, and she starred in 1896. My name is Janelle Dietrich, and I've been researching Alice Guy Blachet for about seven years, and I've written four books about her. Now five. She did the first actual story film, which is ridiculous in a minute to do a story. I mean, now you are used to it. You watch the commercials on TV, and it's incredible what a story they can tell in 30 seconds or a minute. Our story continues after this message. But nobody thought you could do it, and that changed the landscape. Alice Guy, la première femme cinéaste au monde. While Alice's career has been documented before, the details of her life had largely gone unchecked by historians. I think she was made into an icon and that just flattened her out. It's been hard for people looking through 20th century eyes or 21st century eyes to see her as a person. If you say she was the first woman director and she directed a thousand films, you're really taking her out of context because today the director is like, really important. He's got all this status. Films are two hours long or, you know, a series or whatever. But what she was doing was like a minute. And she did everything, the scenes, the costumes. Wow, how did anybody ever do that? Well, she started in the beginning. Permit me to present to you the one who has filled my life entirely. My own Prince Charming. The cinema. He is an elderly gentleman, as you shall see. What got me started is trying to fill in the gaps in her memoirs. Oh, they are so short. There's like 160 pages. They're beautiful, but they're cryptic. I have often been asked why I chose so unfeminine a career. Yet I have not chosen this career. No doubt my destiny was traced before my birth. And I have merely followed a will whose name I do not know. Strange fate, which I shall try to recount for you. Writing in her 80s, Alice began her retrospective with the emigration of her parents, Marie Aubert and Emile Guy. She says in her memoirs, an aunt and uncle of her mother's had emigrated to South America. And that had led to her parents' marriage, which was arranged. And I wanted to know why Alice's father went to Chile. 1848, there were revolutions all over Europe. And one-third of the foreigners who came to the California Gold Rush were French. 
Most people don't realize that. There are towns in California that are called like French. Town. Camp Hill. Corral. Gulch. The Americans say, yeah, we want the gold for ourselves, so they kick the foreigners out. This is my claim. I just staked it out. I don't have proof that he came from France to California to Chile, but it makes sense that he would have, because that's what people did. As you approach the latitude of Santiago, the shore towns become increasingly handsome. A host of Europeans in the New World ended up in the luxurious Chilean port city of Valparaíso. In Valparaíso, they had a international community. There were a lot of Germans, a lot of French, a lot of English. They all had their own hospitals and their own newspapers. Alice's uncle had a soap factory. He was very successful. I think they probably made candles too, which you can imagine everybody needed candles and soap. I think he bought Emil Guy, the bookstore in Valparaiso, as part of Alice's mother's dowry. As Janelle writes, the 19th century publisher was often editor, printer, bookseller, banker, and marketing director. Alice's childhood would, for a time, be full of books. In order that one of her children be French, my numerous brothers and sisters had all been born in Chile. My mother had valiantly endured a sea voyage of seven weeks. Thus, I also accomplished my first voyage between Valparaiso and Paris. It was not to be my last. Her first four years, she was with her grandmother in Geneva, or Carouge, actually, which is a suburb of Geneva. Grandmère was not wealthy. Yet in her tiny home, despite our age differences, everyone was her joy. We gathered around her table where we enjoyed the cherry soup perfumed with wine and cinnamon, or cheese she lovingly served in a bowl of cream. She told us legends of her native Biram and sang to us in her admirable voice a song from her youth. Those were very happy and idyllic for her, but then her mother came and got her, and her mother was a stranger. So it was like a stranger kidnapping. In the railroad station, my poor grandmother wept. I cried too, and threw a tantrum. But the departure signal hastened our separation. Drunk with tears, I slept at last. Her mother, whom she didn't remember or know, came and just took her away and took her to Chile. The boat ride was like, what, six weeks? Seven weeks, yeah, seven weeks, because they had to go around the horn. There was no uh, Panama Canal yet. Of this voyage, I have kept few memories. The long gold ribbon that the moon unrolled to the horizon, the phosphorescent sea, the flying fish, my own baptism on crossing the equator. I think that was traumatic. It kind of happened to her again two years later. She met her father for the first time when she was four. Excuse me, Then her father brought her back to France when she's six and puts her in the convent. So she had that family separation trauma twice. I think it was something that formed her artistically because she had to find fantasy and ways to tolerate that kind of trauma. I was enrolled as a student at the convent of the Sacred Heart at Viri, on the Swiss border. 
I was six years old. After this two years of sun and gaiety, I seemed to have entered the world of the nightbirds. The black-clad nun who received me made me mount and descend stairways, traverse long, vaulted, dark corridors. The silence was absolute. The cold, penetrating. The methods used were without softness. For the smallest offenses, there were long periods of kneeling, arms crossed in an icy corridor. For graver sins, a cell and dry bread and water. It was an international school. The religious community there had schools in different countries, Italy, England, and so they could just rotate the kids and they could learn different languages. Her older sisters were there, and she knew them from her first four years in Carouge. But they kept the kids apart. That's one of the ways they raised kids. They didn't want them to form attachments with each other. The parents also avoided too much attachment to the kids because, you know, half the kids died. There were no antibiotics. The birth rate was low, and then the survival rate was not great. Childhood was very difficult in the 19th century. Enforced silence was really hard on them. They just didn't tolerate noise. They let them out to play for like half an hour. I don't think they fed them enough. It just was very severe. They had to sew a lot, work a lot, pray a lot, you know, no nonsense. So I, I'm sure it was hard for all of them. In Paris, 50% of the women worked in service as maids or laundresses. The other 50% worked in the needle trades, sewing. So what they learned at the convent was to sew. Never forget we are an order of workers. That was considered useful skill. Then if you did get married, then you still needed to sew. The myth is that women didn't work until after the 1950s. Women always had to work. You know, they just didn't get paid a lot and didn't have a good job. <laughs> work them hard. Remember, the superior of all is a servant of all. I understand. The hard realities of the convent were contrasted against the sweeping beauty of the surrounding scenery. The Disney castles were all found from around there. That sparks a child's imagination. In Switzerland, they had a lot of myths, fairies, little gnomes in the ground, a fog that would come up and be an apparition. People falling off the cliff were pushed by a dwarf you know, or something, you know? So I think it was like a land of stories. She thrived on the stories, as most kids do, but more particularly her, I think, being separated from her parents. It must be magic. Her dad came and got her out of the convent because he couldn't afford it anymore. First he moved her to a, a less expensive convent and then came and got her and they were all in Paris together. In those years, she said they were in reduced circumstances. Though Alice would not describe the tragedy of her father's life, she would later elaborate on similar themes in her films. She did a screenplay, or what they call them scenarios back then, of a gambler that gambled too much and had a problem. How many cards? I think it was about her father. She has several scenarios about that. Come on, 
Have another drink. I think that's one of the problems he had. Rotten luck. And they did that a lot in California and in Chile. Full house. Gambling was it. She had three older sisters and an older brother. Her older brother was 13 when he died in 1880, and her father died in 1891. And then a sister also died in 1902. From a family of seven, they were down to four. In Alice's memoirs, she covers that in a paragraph. She doesn't tell you the dates, but not a lot of details. Another man, five years older than her father, became an important figure in her life, famous engineer Alexandre Gustave Eiffel. To understand Alice, it's important to know a little about Eiffel. I think she knew him before her father died. I think he was a friend of her father's. He solved a lot of problems in engineering bridges that carried the train across rivers and skyscrapers, they say, were built based on his calculations. Statue of Liberty was taller than any building in New York at the time, and that's a structure holding that up that he designed. So he had a whole career of building bridges, public works mostly. To do public works, he had to get along with everybody. He bid on projects all over the world. He built things in South America, Asia, Europe. He had to know those people, socialize with those people, get along with those people, do a good job on the last project he did. He had to be in with the people who had the purse to get those jobs. Eiffel went to Chile in 1872, the year before Alice was born. They still talk in South America about bridges that Eiffel may have done in Chile. And they're going like, we can't find any that we really can credit him with. What he did as a bread and butter thing, I mean, he had big bridges and big projects. But his business, he developed these portable bridges. They were like kits. So he would ship the prefabricated parts to South America, and then people could build their own. I saw a bridge that looked like one of his bridges in Chile but it's got this other guy's name on it. I'm going like, yeah, but that's how they did it, you know? (laughs) They got the kit, and then they put it together. He had built 40 bridges. Then in the 1880s, he started building the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower was a culmination of his engineering career. They called him an artist after he built the Eiffel Tower. The newspaper, Le Figaro, had an office in the Eiffel Tower, so they covered him pretty regularly if he did something or went to something charitable or attended a funeral or whatever. They wrote it down. So he was famous, but then he had a scandal. In 1879, he was at a conference talking about building the Panama Canal. The guy that built the Panama Canal built the Suez Canal, and so everybody trusted him to build the Panama Canal, but the Suez Canal was sea level. Panama Canal had to go over a mountain for 50 miles. They were just going to dig through that mountain, and everybody believed that this guy could do it because he had done the Suez Canal. So they all threw their money in, and he couldn't do it. It just was impossible with the equipment they had then. (laughs) Maybe they could do it now. Eiffel and French engineers recommended another route. He had developed the locks 
they're like giant bathtub that you fill up with water and the boats go up one side of the isthmus and down the other. There's like 10 locks. He designed that and they actually used his design. The French tried to build it until 1889. The Americans picked it up in 1904 and finished it in 1914. And it was completed the same day World War I started. So there was like no celebration. The French effort failed, not because of a flaw in design, but because the funding fell through. With no canal and no payback on their investment, the public was outraged. Though Eiffel was only a contractor, his name was at the center of the controversy. The public just hated him. He was probably like Bernie Madoff or something back then. He wasn't so popular like he is now in mythology. The Panama Canal scandal effectively ended his engineering career just as the career of the first female filmmaker was about to begin. In her memoirs, and later to TV cameras, Alice described the great romance of her life to a man she never named. In print, Alice refers to this mysterious figure by cryptic initials. PB must have been 70 years old at that epoch. I was 17, but I was literally in love with him. Every Thursday evening was a party for me. We passed those evenings in PB's home with his two daughters. I sat close to him, my hand in his, while his two daughters served tea or played music and my mother knitted or embroidered. Janelle thinks that man was Eiffel. Piecing their two biographies together, is the subject of Janelle's book, Alice and Eiffel, A New History of Early Cinema, and the love story kept secret for a century. He was married and had five kids, and his wife died in 1877, and he never remarried. He didn't have a woman in his life for 45 years, but he was like the most eligible bachelor in Europe. There was this corresponding gap in his life, same as hers. She had this gap of no boyfriend until she was 33. And she's a beautiful woman, and you're going, I don't know about that, you know? <laughs> and then he has the same gap. Like, nobody knows what he was doing. He wasn't doing the Panama Canal. He was out of his business. So once I put them together, then the chore was, well, what evidence is there that they had a relationship? It's mostly based on her words, because she was still talking about it when she was 90. People expect one piece of evidence to prove everything. They call it the smoking gun, which is just a myth. There's no such thing. You never find a smoking gun. That would be catching somebody red-handed. I like to say each piece of evidence has its own unique value. You never know what it's going to be in the end. In 1891, a few months after the death of Emil Guy, a private company was formed to combat one of the greatest threats facing 19th century France, infant mortality. Eiffel knew everybody who founded Muchacha Maternelle, where her mother worked right after her father died. He wasn't one of them. He wasn't an officer, but he knew all those people. They were his friends. Her mother worked there for a while, but then she had to quit for some reason. I think they stopped paying her. Why else would she quit? Alice had to learn a way to make a living. A family friend told her mother that she should take stenography and typing. I think that was Eiffel. It was PB who advised my mother to have me take typing and stenography lessons, a science quite new in those days. 
You should have almost no movement in your wrists and forearms. She said her teacher was a stenographer from the Chamber of Deputies. Well, he knew all them, too. F-R-F-4-K-I-K-9. D-E-J-N, and so forth. If you take your 21st century eyes and go, oh, she was a secretary, well, now people say things like, just a secretary. Hi, Miss Edwards. Well, hi, Joe. I understand you're going to be helping us out here. Yes, ma'am. Secretaries were men, because they were the protege, the owner of the business's right-hand man. Oh, hi, Joe. Good afternoon, Mr. Nelson. What's my first job? Uh... I have a picture of stenographers in 1900, and there's all these men and... Two women. That's it. It was very prestigious. The afternoon mail just came in. Do you think you can handle that? Oh, yeah. Thanks. World War I came along and the men had to go to war. And women pretty much took over that job. We are still short millions of hands. We must call upon women. And then once the job gets feminized, it gets associated with women, then men don't want that job. Same thing happened in reverse with stewardesses. We thank you all for flying with us today. We enjoyed having you on board. Women only worked on the airplanes serving Cokes. Then men started to get the job and the wages tripled just because of the status from men doing a job. The government's policy is that women should get the same pay that men get for similar work. 92-93, her first secretarial job was at a varnish factory in March 94. She gets the job at, let's not go Mont yet, it's called the Comptoir General de Photographie. The camera shop where Alice would get her start would in fact be purchased by Eiffel shortly after she was hired. Eiffel knew the former owner, who was Felix Max Richard, and the other former owner, who was Joseph Vallot. He knew both of them for years before the company changed hands in 1895. Felix Max Richard had been sued by his brother, for a non-competition agreement that he had signed. The brothers were in partnership with Shard Frères, which was scientific instruments. Felix Max Richard built a weather station on top of the Eiffel Tower and he got a award for it from the Legion of Honor. And that made his brother mad. The other brother, Jules Richard, sued Felix Max Richard for buying a camera shop. That camera shop had already existed. And then in late 1893, the court ruled against Felix Max Richard and said, yeah, you can't have a camera shop. A camera is a precision instrument. They ruled against him and he appealed in the fall of 1893. It took a year and a half for that decision to come down. So Felix Max Richard is waiting to hear if he's gonna win his appeal or not. He approached Eiffel and Eiffel said, get someone to manage the Comptoir General de Photography and that's when Leon Gaumont was hired. <coughs> Alice was also hired about the same time. Leon Gaumont started March 1st, 1894. That's his contract. He has a written contract. And I think Alice started that month because the advertising changed to be more appealing to women. You don't have to be embarrassed to take a clumsy camera on your vacation. You can just get this little camera and it'll fit in with your outfit. <laughs> so I think she was there. March 1894, just within a few weeks of when Gaumont was there. The Court of Appeal didn't render their decision until May 1895, and that's when Eiffel, Valot, so their fellow named Besnier, and then Gaumont wanted to get in on it. They bought the company and formed a partnership of four partners. 
that was called El Gomont in the Sea because Eiffel was still in scandal. Even in December 94, they were thinking of stripping his medals away. He had all these Legion of Honor medals, and they were going, we should take those away from him. He was still having to lay low. Charles Paté et Léon Gaumont, premier géant du cinéma, sur TV5Monde. Gaumont would largely take the credit. He has some responsibility for creating his own image as the inventor, the genius. Mr. Gaumont, he's the brilliant inventor that started everything. I think he just nosed his way in there. He was more just a businessman that watched everybody and made sure they did their job. He was harsh. He was a harsh employer. If Leon Gaumont's role in the history of motion pictures has been exaggerated over time, Eiffel's contributions have been chronically understated. Nobody knew about his years at Gaumont. They figured, well, he's just a rich guy that invested money. What they call a silent partner. Sit down and make yourself comfortable. I'll be with you in a moment. Actually, he was president. Take this letter, please. The assumption is, well, if you're rich, why would you work? <laughs> But working on motion pictures was interesting. He had always, he was taking pictures in the 1870s. Back then, they were developing in themselves. And his friends were like Jules Jansen, who did the first motion picture of an eclipse. And then Mary, who did sequential photography 10 years later, he was friends with him. So he was there at the beginning. We showed them how easy the camera was to use. I knew almost nothing of this art. I had to familiarize myself with the sizes of plates, the variety of papers, the chemical products, the different camera names, the qualities, focus lengths, shutters, etc. Happily, I learned quickly. It was a camera manufacturer, and cameras back then, mostly you just had professionals taking pictures. But the Comptoir General de Photography was advertised as photography for amateurs, and they gave classes every day, every day for free. The way he explains it, it doesn't seem too hard. Like two hours. What is the ratio? 10 a.m. Come down and learn how to use a camera, how to develop the film. You know, it wasn't just click and shoot. You had to set your shutters and load the camera, all kinds of things that you don't have to do anymore. And it sets the lens by itself, too. So you're always ready for the next picture instantly. And then developing the film, you had to buy chemicals and learn how to build a dark room. They turned out great. Wonderful color, too. I think she probably taught that because she said she had to learn all about the plates and the papers and the chemicals. So I think she probably had to teach that class. They probably had other people doing it as well, but that was probably one of the things she had to do, which would have prepared her for then doing more with the camera. One day in March of 1895, Auguste and Louis Lumiere stopped by the shop to see Gaumont. The Gaumont company bought their chemicals or papers from the Lumieres. So they had a connection there, and Gaumont became good friends with the Lumières. They came to invite him to attend a meeting of the Société d'Encouragement pour l'Industrie Nationale, where the two brothers would present a new camera of their invention. I was present at the interview, and they invited me also, but they refused to give us any explication of their instrument. You'll see, they said. It's a surprise. They had done motion pictures, but they were all, you know, look through a little viewer and one person sees it. 
Demony had one that was just a, a disc that you roll, so it was very limited to what you could see on the disc. It'd be like 18 pictures on a disc, and you just turn it and you'd see the moving picture. But the Lumieres put it on a roll of film, then projected it on the wall, and it just astounded everybody. March 22nd, 1895, they showed it to their professional peers first. They had several other showings in June 1895, and then in December 1895, they had the first screening for the public, and the public was totally wowed just to see people on the wall or on the screen larger than life. It was astonishing at the beginning. We're so used to it. But we're still very thrown by images, I think. Images are powerful. There had been created a little laboratory for the development and printing of short shots, parades, railroad stations, portraits of the laboratory personnel, which served as demonstration films, but were both brief and repetitious. Daughter of an editor, I had read a good deal and retained quite a bit. I had done amateur theatricals, and I thought that one might do better than these demonstration films. Gathering my courage, I timidly proposed to Gaumont that I might write one or two little scenes and have a few friends perform in them. And Gaumont said, yeah, yeah, that's silly, but go ahead, if you, if you like, <laughs> so, <laughs> on your own time. <laughs> if the future development of motion pictures had been foreseen at this time, I should never have obtained his consent. My youth, my inexperience, my sex, all conspired against me. I was given an unused terrace with an asphalt floor, which made it impossible to set up a real scene in shaky glass ceiling overlooking a vacant lot. It was in this palace that I made my first efforts. A backdrop painted by a fan painter and fantasist from the neighborhood made of vague decor with rows of wooden cabbages cut out by a carpenter. Costumes rented here and there around the Port saint Martin. As actors, my friends, a screaming baby, an anxious mother leaping to and fro into the camera focus. And my first film, La Fille Achou, was born. I should exaggerate if I told you it was a masterpiece, but the public then was not jaded. The actors were young and pleasing, and the film had enough success that I was allowed to try again. The 1896 version of La Fille Achou, like so many early films, is now lost. Historians still quibble with whether this film actually existed, suggesting Miss Guy simply misremembered. Even in her posthumously published memoirs, there is an asterisk disputing this claim. But Alice held firm on this point, and you think she'd remember. She remade La Fille Achou in 1900 and 1902. Janelle has an entire book on the subject, La Fille Achou, Alice Guy's Garden of Dreams. In this business, you're just happy to find a fragment. I would love to just have a fragment of the first Lafayette shoe, and it may be found somewhere, sometime. The 1896 one, Alice described as having a honeymoon couple, a farmer. They go out to find a baby in the cabbage patch, and they ask the farmer, and the farmer says, go ahead, and they look for babies, and they find a baby. There was no fairy in Alice's scenario. There's a lot of 
Cabbage Patch Baby postcards from that period. There are babies in the cabbages, but there's no fairy. Alice says the mother of the baby kept jumping into the field of focus to tend the baby. So I think it just happened that the mother became the fairy. That one minute of film costs like eight days of her salary. So you know she wasn't like, well, let's just do it over. It was thought for a long time that the 1900 one was a copy of the 1896 one. The 1900 one is just a single, the fairy is picking up babies out of the cabbages. And then there's another one called Sage Femme de Première Classe, a midwife first class. Ugh. Alice hated that title later on. She said, I would never have called it that. I found it in the newspaper when it came out in 1902. It was called La Fée Chou. But Gaumont, I think, changed the name because in the later catalogs it's called Sage Femme de Première Classe. And the third one, a honeymoon couple goes to a baby market. It's like a garden that's a market. And they look at seven or eight babies and then they pick one. So that's completely different from the first one and the second one. They're all three different, but she called them all La Fée Chou. A play does a production. It's called the same thing every time, but every time they produce a play, they make changes. New actors, new costumes, new set. They put their own spin on it, I think. That's what she was thinking. She just, yeah, they're all La Feo Shoe, but they're different iterations of the same idea. Back then, films weren't the main feature. You know, they were only a minute long. They were just sideshows. You showed films in the store. You pay a nickel and just see the film for a minute. Or they showed them at the fair. Just had people in and out seeing the same film. You know, they didn't have theaters to show movies in. There were theaters for plays, but there weren't theaters for movies. And it was a one-minute format, so it's like, what are you going to do with that? I think La Feuchu was paired with a play called Lonnie Fritz. Lamy Fritz was called the national novel because it was about France. Vanité des vanités, tout n'est que vanité. On oublie les événements d'hier, on oubliera ceux de demain. France had a really terrible birth rate and infant mortality rate. Alors en vérité, je vous le dis. It's just a romance. An older bachelor doesn't want to get married, but he meets this young woman and they fall in love. And finally, in the end of the play, they kiss and they're engaged, or they hug and they're engaged. That's the end of the play. That play had been playing in Paris for 20 years, so it's like a classic. It's like the Nutcracker. People would go see it from summer to Christmas, and they played it on Christmas Day. The reference I have in a newspaper of 1896 puts them in the same paragraph, Lamy Fritz, and this wonderful chromo landscape of babies being pulled out of cabbages. To have it paired with a very famous play, and it hit on a national theme, after seeing the couple apart, the whole play, and then they get together at the end, but they don't get married, they don't have a baby. This little film about the honeymoon couple finding a baby in a patch, I'm sure it was just wonderful. Eiffel was good friends with the administrator of the Comédie Française, and that's where I think they showed it.
she was still doing office work, but when they saw that the first film made money, they let her do more films. She was making films from 1896 on. She was in charge of production at Gaumont from 1897 through 1906. In 1897, she was over at the studio more than at the office. They were about five miles apart, and that was a long trip, you know, horse and buggy. She ended up moving up close to the studio in 1898. But it was all experimental. They didn't know what they were doing, <laughs> which makes it so much fun. Every Monday, we discussed the week's work together. The studio became a hive of activity. Thus, we made a series of comic films, pursuits, tumbles, clashes, acrobatics, what one calls slapstick. They started with chase scenes. A dog gets loose on his leash and upsets a baby carriage, and everybody chases the dog. That's the kind of thing. She used some acrobats. They do these clown-like scenes where they fall and they climb and they drop. In 1902, the Gaumont Company also developed an early method of sync sound. The chronophone used a turntable and switchboard to synchronize a recorded disc with the film strip. She started doing scenes from the opera and different plays, just scenes with a musical number that was recorded separately, and the actors would lip-sync it while they played the recording. I think it was exciting. They were just looking for new ideas all the time. The public was so hungry for everything. Everybody wanted something new every week, so they just had to keep producing, and then the film technology got better. It went from one minute to five minutes to 12 minutes, and then they started doing you know, three reels of 15 minutes each. That was like a feature length. They were all in competition with each other, looking for novelties to make their work stand out. It was while working at Gaumont that Alice was introduced to a certain young Englishman. Herbert Blaché had been working for the London Gaumont branch since 1900, at least. In 1906, he comes to Paris. Alice's cameraman was sick, and she had to go to the south of France to do this film called Mireille, which was a Nobel Prize-winning poem and opera. Herbert Blaché got assigned to go with her, learn the camera and all that. So they went to the south of France. It was romantic, the story was romantic, the place was romantic, but when he went home, she said, I never thought I'd see him again. But then Gaumont sent her to Berlin, where he had gone to help with clients of Gaumont's there. She spent some weeks with him there in Berlin. He asked her to marry him there, and she said, I have to think about it. <laughs> Every man I talk to says, that means no. They did end up getting married about nine months later, in March 1907. In one of her interviews, somebody asked her, so, you got married because Gaumont sent you to the U.S.? And she said, no, I was married, and then he sent us to the U.S. Two months later, three days married, I left my family and my country with a heavy heart persuaded that I was abandoning my fine métier forever. We arrived in New York at four o'clock in the morning, the view of liberty lighting the world. 
The sight of skyscrapers and the fog could not chase my sadness. I saw all that through tears, which I tried in vain to stop. All around me I heard exclamations and enthusiasm, in a language of which I understood not one word. Alice and Herbert were sent to Cleveland to hawk the company's chronophone technology. Gaumont wasn't in the U.S. yet. The U.S. was making movies, and Gaumont was going to try to sell his synchronized sound theaters in the U.S. They did sell some, but that wasn't successful. Then he had Herbert set up an office in New York. June 1908, the first Gaumont office opened in New York. They're trying to sell and distribute films. But then the Edison Trust starts. Thomas Edison, a nasty businessman, set up the Motion Picture Patents Company, a.k.a. the Trust, to ruthlessly sue manufacturers, distributors, and exhibitors of films that did not license trustee equipment and pay the MPCC fees. It seems illegal, and it was. My husband was an antitrust lawyer. I said, why do they monopolize? He goes, to crush the competition. That is what they're there for, crushing the competition. Everything they do is to crush it. All these film businesses were startups, all the film companies. There were probably 100 film companies. And Edison got it down to like five. He was put out of business finally by the court in 1915, but he did so much damage before that, creating a business environment where they couldn't work, where they couldn't produce, where they couldn't sell their product to theaters. Gaumont had a camera that was patented that was different than Edison's, so he could have sold his camera to independents and carved out his own market. Instead of doing that, he tried to get in the trust, and they just dangled him for two or three years, and then they cut him off. Janelle thinks that Alice was working during this time, but across the board of early cinema, it's hard to track people's filmographies. There wasn't credits in movies then. Right, and you know why? Painters had long educations learning how to paint, like, photographs. So when photography came in, they didn't think photography was art. They said the machine did it. You know, the camera did the work. So they didn't give photographers credit at first. That carried over into movies. It's like, the camera did it. You didn't do it. You just pointed the camera. It took a long time to give them credit. Studying this early period in movie history is rife with complications. The films are often fragmented, damaged, or lost, and almost entirely uncredited, sometimes misattributed. The best insight is often from the fledgling trade journals of the time, which printed synopses of the newest films. The audience wasn't expected to get it from the film, they would already know the story because, say, they were doing a story everybody knew. Grave robbers from outer space. Or they would publish a story in a magazine in the month before the film came out. So people would read the story before they saw the film. Ironically, the day Alice left France, Moving Picture World was started in New York, their first issue. It's like 16 pages, I think. In the first issue, they say, Okay, if you're in the movie business, just send us what you got and we'll put it in. It was really advertising. It was really the movie business 
reporting on what they were doing. And so it had a few synopses in it and it was just, you know, ads and we're selling this and we're selling that and we're working on this. And, we're, and it just expanded until I think in the 1910s, each issue was like 150 pages. Janelle's book, Illuminating Moments, the films of Alice Guy Blachet, organizes the write-ups of 725 productions. I had typed up all her synopses to her scenarios because I thought that was important. Even if all you have is a title, you have something. You have something to research. She did songs in movies. She did poems. She did children's stories, novels, plays, operas. So you have something to look at that tells you something about her and her time. Many people who have never set foot in a studio before 1930, and perhaps even since then, believe that we used to work without scenarios. Nothing could be more false. Except for the earliest films of 20 or 25 meters, everything was prepared in advance. The story written with care, the cast, decor, the costumes prepared in detail and distributed at each shooting. Otherwise, how could we have avoided going down in disorder? Even if we didn't have a script girl. Line? That actually was your line. Oh, great. The Gaumont studio was not being used. Alice said, well, maybe I can use the studio and make some films. So she started making films there in 1910. She had a two-year-old by then. July 31st, 1911, Alice and Herbert went to Europe. There's a picture of them at Eiffel's Lake House in Vevey, Switzerland. And they're both there. And Alice looks really happy. Then Herbert comes back to New York on a different ship. So that's weird. (laughs) So they were separated for like 16 days. Then she came back to New York. She talks to the trade journal and says, well, I'm going to improve the Gaumont studio. Gaumont owned that studio. Eiffel was part of Gaumont. I think she went to Eiffel to say, you know, can you help improve the Gaumont studio in New York. It would have been his studio. But I think he did give her some money to invest in her own studio. In 1910, Alice and Herbert founded their own company and called it Solax, the logo, a sun on the horizon. Less than two years later, she had built her own studio in Fort Lee, New Jersey. She had been through building a studio in Paris because Gaumont built a huge studio. She witnessed that studio being built. She probably had something to do with that, too. So she knew what she wanted. Solax was the biggest, fanciest studio of its time, full of -of state-of-the-art technology. A removable ceiling, multiple stages, one made of glass, wide gardens for exterior shooting, a laboratory on the premises costume and set fabrication departments, with expansions being added all the time. Their films were made on Bell and Howell cameras with Eastman Kodak film. It had everything. It was like her fantasy studio. She said it cost $100,000 to build. She later said that she got $50,000, which was a million to, in profit sharing. But... There was no profit sharing at Gaumont. It was a four-partner partnership. They didn't incorporate until January 1907, and she left in March 1907. 
the truth is she only had 100 shares of Gaumont stock, so she didn't get 50 grand for 100 shares. Just call it profit sharing. You were in on it. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> That's what I think happened. Here's your receipt. At Solax, Alice no longer had anyone to report to but herself. The decision of what to make and the burden of how to finance were hers alone. These are the programs that America listens to. In her own company, she did 300-something films. A lot of them were the shorter version, 5, 12 minutes. Drama. But she had 20 or 25 feature-length films. And comedy. She wrote most of those, too. She bought some. But why should she? she? She found it easy to write. So why should she pay someone $10 for a scenario when she can just write it up herself? And she had to rewrite everything she bought. <laughs> she said, you wouldn't recognize it after I got done with it. So I think she wrote most of those, but she didn't claim it. She needed that camouflage to express herself. There's a funny one called Sticky Woman. She's licking stamps in a post office. I can't tell if it's her playing the woman who's doing this or not. I'll go out on a limb. I definitely think it's her. But she's licking stamps, and this guy comes into the post office, and he gets all excited about her because she's licking her lips. And he grabs her and kisses her, and they get stuck together with all the glue from the stamps. And then somebody has to come over and cut his mustache off so that they can separate, and then she has a mustache. That relates to the convent because the nuns told the girls that if you kiss a boy, you'll get a superb mustache. Then there's the consequences of feminism. I think she's in that one too. I like the ones that she's in. She's wearing like a bear coat and carries a rifle. They throw the men out of the bar and the women are all sitting there drinking. So that's a fun one. And there's another one where she drops in a cabbage patch and has a baby. That's her too. That one's called Madame Has Her Cravings. The Madame, as portrayed by Alice Guy, also steals candy from a baby, absinthe from a distracted diner, a herring from a beggar, and a salesman's pipe before having her baby in a roadside cabbage patch. It is a wacky and wonderfully weird five minutes. So these you can see on YouTube. But there is no extant film more associated with Alice Guy than 1912's Falling Leaves. The published scenario is unique among her catalog. Falling Leaves is the only one that says Alice Guy Blaché on it that I can find. I haven't found any other stories with her name on it. The star of it is a little girl, and it's from the point of view of the little girl when the camera is watching the scene. The little girl will be behind somebody, but then she comes out so you can see her face, so we're always looking at her face to see what she's thinking. She looks like she's six. She has an older sister. It looks like she's 17 or 18, but she's coughing. The doctor tells the mother that when the leaves fall off the trees, she'll be gone. The little girl hears it, and then she looks at the leaves, and she goes like, I can do something about this. So she gets some string and she ties the leaves on the trees. While she's tying the leaves on the trees at night, some famous inventive doctor comes by and she says, you're a doctor? Come in and see my sister. And he has this elixir that he's just developed. (laughs) He cures her and they get married. 
So, you know, <laughs> that's the story, but it's about the little girl. I think Alice did that a lot. She took a sad story and gave it a happy ending. And that was just her way of coping. I think she drew on her personal experience because she wrote a lot. She had to write on demand, like every day, producing those films at Gaumont and then again at her own company. You accuse writers of that and they go like, no, 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 you can't tell which exact detail of a story is from her life. But some of them are details from her life. You find this. You find this analysis scenario as a little six-year-old girl. Who's that? You know? <laughs> I think her whole life is about what happened to her when she was a little girl. A lot of her stories were about these problems come to the family, but then the family in the end is reunited. I think that was one of her driving creative forces. Because her family was broken up. I mean, if you have a, you know, easy life, why would you produce art? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> What fortune had conspired for Alice was not to last. A series of ambitious films, like the 1913 feature Dick Whittington and His Cat, lost money for the Solak studio. The war, the changing industry, even factors more personal, could have had their impact on the company's downfall. But at the end of the day, what happened to Solak's is anybody's guess. I had my own business for a few years, and... I was amazed, you know, when you start your business, people come in and go like, how's it going? Like the first day. And you realize right away that you have to say it's great every day, no matter how it is, because people won't patronize you if they don't think you're successful. So even from the first day, you have to say it's going great. Everything's great. And then the littlest thing can push you over the edge. Bad weather, an uninsured loss, sick for a week. I mean, you can't recover. When things got tight in, like, 1915, the studio was a nice asset for them. They rented it to other film companies. Solax transformed again and became, for over 18 months under the name of Popular Plays and Players, the supplier for Universal, World, Metro, Pathé, and others. We were rightly called suckers, fish who take not only the bait, but the hook. Herbert and Alice were still working there, making films for the other companies, but they were renting the studio to the other companies. I don't know if there's a Solex film after 1914 that's called a Solex film, but she was making films after 1914, just they were under names of different companies. But that studio had a fire in 1919, and then she sold it in bankruptcy in 1921, I think. Herbert had come to Hollywood in 1918. For the record, he ran off with his leading lady. She came in about 1919. She worked on a couple films with him. Tarnished Reputations was the last film that she's listed as director on. So 1919 was the last for her. I don't think she liked Hollywood. So that's when she decided to go back home. America, they say, always takes back anything she gives you. Completely discouraged, I resolved to return to France with my children. But just look at it from her point of view. You know, her mother was getting older. She had a couple sisters left in France. They'd gotten through the war. She probably didn't see them for four years during the war. I think she just wanted to go home. 
and you know her marriage broke up and that was hard for her and then she couldn't get work so no who likes that and she's in a foreign country why not go home the film industry in France did not recover Gaumont made like three films in 1925 so there was no place for her in the film industry in France so she started writing until her daughter started working and she managed but I don't, I don't think she had a, a lot of money in the rest of her life There's not a lot known about after she goes back to France. William Fox was a friend of hers, and she worked for Fox making film scripts into novels that could be sold. She did that in the late 30s. By then she was 60-something. And then she wrote her memoirs in the 1940s, early 50s. She got interviewed a lot in the 50s and early 60s. Et vous ne m'avez pas maquillée, d'habitude on me maquille, toujours. <laughs> Mais vous êtes très belle comme ça. Her daughter and son were here in the U.S., so she came back here in 1964. And she died in the U.S. in 1968. Of the over 1,000 films that Alice Guy is credited with directing, most of which she wrote, produced, and occasionally even starred in, less than a quarter are thought to survive. When she returned to America, she went to look for her films, confident that she could find them. She never did. Alice went to the Library of Congress and wrote letters to film archives, but she was only able to find two or three of her films. Even in her 90s, Alice, cryptic as ever, described the love she left behind. She wrote about it in her memoirs, which... Despite her efforts, she could not get published during her lifetime. In a newspaper interview in 1963, she let slip the words, My faithful Gustave, and no one knew who she was talking about. Interviewed by her granddaughter in front of French TV cameras in 1963, Alice says, I gladly would have married him. Quel âge aviez-vous? J'avais 18 ans. Ephemeral is written and assembled by Alex Williams and produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Trista McNeil. Our American Alice Guy was portrayed by Victoria Temple. Janelle Dietrich is the author of five books on Alice Guy Blaché, including the novel Mademoiselle Alice and her newest work, The Famous Boarding School at Ferrier. Find them wherever books are sold and find us at ephemeral.show.
Next time on Ephemeral. My grandfather, William Grant Still, is commonly known as the Dean of African-American Composers. That's mostly because he has a very long list of firsts. Like, he was the first Black man to conduct a major radio orchestra. He could get so irritated that people were always calling him a Black composer. Because he was like, what, do you call Copeland a Jewish composer every time you introduce him? We need to just stop treating it like Black music. Stop only performing the Afro-American Symphony. Stop only performing it during Black History Month. Start playing the freaking music. Support Ephemeral by recommending an episode, leaving a review, or dropping us a line at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And learn more at ephemeral.show.